I promised I didn't have a, a button on the off switch there, Philip. Um, um, yes, as Philip said, my name's Peter. I'm a member of the church here. Uh, I'm just imitating Philip with my hairstyle, that's all. Um, it's a privilege to actually be able to preach this morning and to share with you this morning. And as uh, Philip has said, we continue to our Advent series um, uh, called The Promise. And it's a real life drama um, of a promise and, and, a way, and, and with us exploring the promise that God made right back at the beginning of time. The point at which Adam and Eve could have been the end of the story, God made a promise. And God made a promise again and again and again and again that he was going to do something about what Adam and Eve had brought in. And that is what we're going to continue this morning, looking at that idea of a promise that God would send his son. And the implication for that and for us as his creation and for the creation as a whole, and actually what I also want to look at is how that has an implication for us in terms of peace. I want to look at that promise of peace that God made way back. I want to see how that steps into our lives and how he steps into our lives through the birth of his son. And I want to start with uh, uh, one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament, one that we associate with this time of year. It's the passage about the birth of Jesus, and it's the passage about the shepherds outside Bethlehem. In, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Caesar, the Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and the lineage of David, i.e. of the tribe of Judah. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And in those days, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill amongst men. On June the 23rd, 1984, I made a promise. I carry a reminder of that promise on the ring finger of my left hand. 
a promise that I would love, honour, cherish Janine for richer and for poorer in sickness, and there's been a lot of that in our family this year, and in health. I, Peter, take you, Janine, to have and to hold, etc., etc. Those of you who've made that promise will remember the day now that you made that promise, I suspect. It was a promise made in front of a full church of people, in front of a woman I loved then and a woman I love now. But it's a promise that I made, and it's only as good as the person you believe me to be. It's only as good as the person, the promise, uh, the person that Janine believed me to be on that day and believes me to be now. How trustworthy am I to keep a promise? Because there are so many in whom that promise has failed. When we talk about a promise that God has made, the trustworthiness of that promise lies within the person who made the promise to start off with. Now, I don't know whether you've got one of these in your pocket. I just happen to have one ready to hand. If you have, take it out and look at it, because it says, underneath the Bank of England, in very, very, very small writing, it says, I promise to pay the bearer. You hold in your pocket a piece of paper that is worth no more in printing costs than 3p. That's how much it costs to make this piece of paper. Three pence. Yet it says, the Bank of England says, I promise to pay the bearer, in this case, this green one, five pounds, in that red one, ten pounds, in the other ones, I can't remember all the colours, blue, purple, twenty pounds, etc. I promise that if you hand this piece of paper worth 3p to somebody in a shop, they will give you ten pounds or five pounds or twenty pounds worth of good. You hold in your pocket a promise from the Bank of England. Now, the reason why they can make that profit is because somewhere in the vault, somewhere, I think in London, I think at the end of Pall Mall, I've been stalking it, is a bullion vault full of gold. And the only way that the Bank of England can make that promise is because it stands on a vault full of gold. Can we trust the Bank of England with our money? Well, I'm not sure we can trust the government. Sorry bombshell. Um, but I think we can trust the gold in the, uh, in the Bank of England. You see, the promise is as good as the person who makes the promise and the backing they have to it. And in the Bank of England, I think we've got something fairly solid. But actually, we're talking about a promise of peace, a promise of a person that goes beyond even the solidity of the gold of the Bank of England. It goes to the heart of a God who actually wants to make our life secure, wants to make our, uh, our families secure, wants to make our world and our society secure in his son. And that's a promise that he promised to keep and comes with a backing that's bigger than anything you can conceive of. And I want to look at the promise of peace. Peace at this time of year is a, is a major theme. We read it in the passage with the angels, peace and goodwill to all men. And I want to look at the nature of the promise of peace. I want to look at the nature of peace itself in our lives and our hearts and our minds. And I want to look at the reality of that peace when it comes to what God means. Because I think there's a difference as we go through. In Isaiah... God says this, he says, Isaiah says, I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things 
planned long ago. And we have, in this promise, something that God planned a long time ago. Something that wasn't left hanging over his creation, over us, to just get on with life, to deal with the issues and the problems we have, but something that God said, I will deal with and I will start now. And as, we, as he fulfills his promise, I want us to not misunderstand it, the way in which the people around Jesus misunderstood the idea of that promise. I don't want us to misunderstand it in the way in which society can misunderstand the promise of Jesus, but I want us to enter into the reality of what that, uh, of that promise really is. Philip introduced us to this passage last week. It's the promise of a saviour. It was given to us by Isaiah around about 700 years before the birth of Christ. It was given to us, um, it was given to the people of Israel to remind them that God would send them a ruler, somebody who would um, stand in government, take on board everything that Israel stood for, and be strong. There are a number of titles here to that person that that, uh, uh, Isaiah says will come. And one of those is Prince of Peace. It talks, it features the beginning of a wonderful, uh, this passage um, features at the beginning of what I consider the beginning of Christmas. You know, three o'clock, Boxing Day, evening, afternoon. Christmas Eve, sorry, not Boxing Day. (laughs) Okay, nine lessons and carols from Cambridge, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, that's when Christmas starts. It starts right at the very beginning, and this is the, the very beginning of Christmas. For me, that, that, uh, that, uh, that festival of nine lessons and carols from King's College Chapel on uh, Christmas Eve, and right at the beginning of the service is this passage, a Prince of Peace, God sending somebody who would be our peace. But it's not the only promise of peace that God gives us in the Old Testament about a ruler to come. And this one is less familiar, but it takes us to the passage we uh, we read earlier on in Luke. It talks about predicting not only the coming of a ruler, but it talks about where that ruler will be born and to which tribe that ruler will be born. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The prophet Micah existed, lived around about 700 BC, around about the same time as Isaiah. He predicted a lot about the coming of Jesus, and as you can pick up there, some of the themes of Jesus' life, such as being shepherd, uh, come out as well. But here we find Jesus is to be a peace, a bringer of peace to Israel itself. And that's the first misconception that I think we have. 
Because the, the, to the people of Israel, peace was fundamental to them in their history. If you think about it, their history was punctuated by things like slavery, oppression, civil war, siege, invasion, deportation, refugee status as a nation. And then at the time of Jesus' occupation under Rome. For them, at the time of Jesus, a saviour was somebody who would overthrow Rome, overthrow oppression, overthrow the things that had made Israel small, the things that had made Israel less than they deemed they should be, and therefore, de- therefore in the eyes of other people, made God less than what, they should, what he should have been. No wonder Israel wanted security because of a history like that. But a strong shepherd in God's name, one who would do God's will, I believe is more than just simply the answer to the state of Israel, the answer to a people at that time who were under oppression under Rome. I think it's far bigger than that. And actually, as we begin to unfold what peace is all about, I believe God believes it's bigger than that as well. You see, this is a subject that is so huge that it spawned a whole sphere of psychology and sociology. On the, le- on the right-hand side of that picture, you see a thing called Maslow's Hierarchy. Um, and Maslow's Hierarchy is a theory whereby uh, we build upon our lives things that bring us peace, things that bring us contentment and happiness, that sense of well-being that we all long for and and drive for in our life. There's something primordial to the need for peace. It's a cry from the heart and a cry from the gut that says, I need rest. I need something in my life that is more than just what crowds in around me. And as I said, it spawned a whole theory and a whole series of investigation. And you don't need people like Zig Ziglar, who's an author and a, uh, or was a, an author and a motivationist from the state, uh, from the states, to state the obvious. Peaceful people are basically the same the world over. Everybody wants to be the same thing: to be happy, to be healthy, to be at least responsibly, pro- reasonably prosperous, and to be secure. They want friends, peace of mind good family relationships and hope that tomorrow is going to be even better than today. That state of well-being that humanity has craved from the beginning of time, that sense that all is right with our world and we are right within that world, is a groan that comes up from the centre of us. It's more in the sense of humanity than just simply a sense of peace for a small nation in the Middle East under the occupation of Rome. It goes far bigger than Israel at that time ever conceived it ever would. And it does for us now. Yet the idea of of, of what peace is differs from time to time, from place to place, from season to season. Okay, Peace at Christmas perhaps might be an oxymoron. Something that you feel never is, is never achieved. I mean, how many of you have striven for peace at Christmas to get the picture on the right? Okay. That wonderful sense of everybody gathered around the family table, smiles on their faces, and actually you've gone through the picture on the left to get to the picture on the right. Okay. So peace is different to different people at different times of year. 
Uh, <clears throat> for some, perhaps, peace is a nostalgic image uh, that is actually driven out by the need and the reality of the perfect Christmas. I'm not sure if that fits you. Um, but, uh, by the way, there are, are, are now only 22 days till Christmas. Have a nice day. Um, or what about this sort of piece? The man or the woman on the 803 from Surbiton to Waterloo every morning. Okay. And the 1721 from Waterloo back to Surbiton every day. Well, Monday to Friday at least. Suited and booted, seemingly impervious to anything that Southwest trains can throw at him or her because they've been there before, been through it before. Using a Kindle as a shield against the world, but probably battling underneath with paying the mortgage, worrying about job security, and whether the children will make it through education. Or what about baby peace? We've heard a lot about babies in the past month. I think we probably ought to ask the three couples who've had babies in the past month as what baby peace looks like. And I intend to ring Philip up tomorrow, tomorrow at about three in the morning because I'm guaranteed that he's going to be awake. Okay, and ask him what peace, about, and peace in baby household really means. Okay, so what is peace when you've got a newborn baby? Okay, I suspect it's really wanting to be asleep and not talking to Peter at three o'clock in the morning. Okay, and by the way, yes, babies really do open up the sluice gates at both ends on a regular basis. <clears throat> Something you'll come to grips with for those of you who haven't had children. We're about to become grandparents, and it's wonderful to know that we can give them back. <clears throat> okay, or what about this? What about peace, teenager peace? Ooh, have we all been there? Boy, I have. Absolutely. For the teenagers trying to make sense of life while riding the sea of raging hormones a world that bombards them with digital images and digital quotes and messages about the perfect body, the perfect education, the perfect parents, the perfect life all their friends are having, and the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend. What would be peace for them? Or what about peace for the adults who's just found that some aspect of their life has fallen off, fallen away, and feel they can't cope? Peace for them is a different thing again altogether within their lives. Well, what about peace here? So a lot of you know that I have this subject very much on my heart and give time and resource to a charity called Restored, which, desire, which wants to get rid of gender-based violence, violence against women. What does peace mean to this woman whose partner just doesn't know when to stop? Or what does peace mean to these when nations just don't know when to stop? What does peace look like here? Well, obviously, in these last images, the absence of war and strife is central to the need for peace. However, it's more than that in our lives. When God talks about peace, he doesn't just talk about the absence of war or strife, however necessary that is and however much we should pray for that around our world and in our society, but something far broader and something far greater. Perhaps I can give you an idea of what peace meant for us at a time when we were about to have our first child. Janine, just going to give us a little pricey of that, as you can see, in sicknesses and health. Sorry, I'm having a little hobble. Okay. Um, when 
I was expecting our first baby, we moved into a flat in Surbiton. After years of renting, we were eventually buying. It was a snug and cosy family home, protected by bricks and mortar. It was our promise of peace. We lived there for five years, but within two years, that dream had turned into a nightmare as we discovered that the freeholders of the block were corrupt and in league with the managing agents. The money that had been paid by the leaseholders into the service charge had been squandered, so there was nothing left to fix the leaking roof and other mounting debts. We realised we needed to get out, but by now we were in negative equity. as the 80s for you. So a group of residents, including Pete, formed a management company to write to our MP, petition the High Court to register as creditors, buy the block from the freeholder and sell the 16 leases. It was very stressful and time-consuming. And some long-term residents became anxious and fearful, and as a family, we became a target for their fear. Once the flat became saleable, we put it on the market, but weeks turned into months and there was no sale. Our promise of a peaceful home had turned sour. As Christmas approached, we sent a letter to our friends and family, and at the end, almost as a PS, we asked people to pray for our situation. And in, with, in six days, the flat was sold, and within three months... We were in our new home. It was as if God was saying, what took you so long to turn to me? You were trusting in bricks and mortar for your peace and your abilities to move the system when I wanted you to trust in me. Thanks, Janine. I think that just sums up the difference between what peace is that we can try and fight for ourselves and the peace that God wants in our hearts. What took you so long to turn to me, said God to us at that stage? Why did you trust in things that you thought were unmovable that actually could move under your feet? God has a different idea of peace to the one that we do. God has a different sense for our lives. Our idea at that time was to get out. His was to get in, into us, and radically change the way in which we related to him. Martin Luther King had it right when he talked about peace in the time of the uh, um, uh, uh, race uprisings in the 1960s. Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. Darkness cannot, drive da- darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. You see, peace is about a change of heart and a change of mind. Peace is about something that replaces the disturbing nature of hate, something that replaces the anxiety of circumstance, something that comes from a love that is deep within us. And I would argue a love not that we can conjure up or bring from the depths of our own souls, like, like pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but actually comes simply because somebody has placed that love in us first because they loved us first. I don't know whether you've ever noticed in the, in the New Testament the way in which the apostles in their letters greet the people they're writing to. 
I've just given you the first seven. Grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, grace and peace, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace. In the 21 letters of the New Testament, only four do not have this greeting. Hebrews, James, 1 John and 3 John. And why this combination of words? Actually, it's not always this combination of words. Occasionally, they put in the word mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Okay, that mercy just adds a bit to the grace. Okay, it just reinforces it a bit. But why this combination of words? Why did a number, not just Paul, but a number of the apostles think that this was so important? In even the smallest one-chapter letters... And why is it always this way round? Grace and peace. Never peace and then grace. <laughs> the thing is, Jesus was called the Prince of Peace because his mission was to first of all bring grace. Bring grace to your life, to my life. And that's why it's always that way round. The baby that we remind ourselves about this time of year is not just a promise of a child, but the promise of a saviour, and a saviour that would bring grace. One who himself was full of peace, but took our chaos, our turmoil, our questions about identity. He took them all on himself. And through that, through giving us grace, gives us peace. That's why grace precedes peace when the apostles greet us from the New Testament. Grace, that act of God in Christ that says you're loved, you're appreciated, you're cared for, irrespective of your circumstances, and whether you feel you've earned that love in the first place. Grace, the act of God through Christ, bringing about such a change in our hearts and our minds that we're completely and utterly reassured by his presence, and that whatever is going on in our lives, that thing cannot prize us out of his security his love and his care. That's what grace is and peace on grace. It's a peace that Jesus says that the world won't understand. It's a peace that he leaves with us. And I want to tell you a little story about my sense of peace. Most of you know that I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon... And the ruling body of um, all doctors in the UK is the General Medical Council, the GMC. And a year or so back, um, I had a letter from the GMC. Now, the GMC has the power to terminate my licence to practice. It goes to the very heart of who you are as a doctor. And being told not that you can't practice is quite a frightening thing when you're in that situation. And one of the fears for any doctor is that we'll be called to account by the GMC. And that's what happened to me. Out of the blue, with no prior warning, there was no letter of complaint to my trust, there was no uh, solicitor's letter saying that somebody was unhappy, a patient complained directly to the GMC, the highest body in the land ruling the conduct of doctors about how I had treated them and the quality of my surgery. When the letter came, I didn't quite believe it. In fact, I went on holiday before I answered it. I was sorry that the patient felt the way that they did about the way 
they had perceived that I'd treated them. But when I got back from holiday, I realized what was at stake. I believe, realized what the GMC was really asking for, the information that they wanted. And the fact that I was about to be assessed by a body who could stop me being who I was, a doctor. And the series of the situation descended. It was quite an unnerving time at that point. And as the process dragged on for nine months, what I found was something quite extraordinary. I don't quite understand it myself, but through the whole process, I had an overwhelming sense of the presence and the peace of God that meant that not, on no occasion did I particularly worry about the outcome, whatever that outcome was going to be. As I say, I don't completely understand it, but I felt surrounded by God's presence, his security, and his peace. And when the judgment finally came, nine months later, I was relieved to be exonerated, feeling also sorry that my patient wouldn't get the closure that she wanted from a judgment against me. And I can say, through that period of time personally, that this verse was fulfilled in me. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, the reality of God's peace is that whatever the world throws at us, we're never going to be prized out of his hands. And it's a peace freely offered. I quoted this verse right at the very beginning. God makes a promise. And it's a promise that is made in history to be fulfilled now. Not at the time of Christ necessarily, but then too. But it goes on and on and on into the future. It's the promise of peace that's not the absence of war or the absence of conflict in our world. It's not, the, it's not the promise that we will be free of trouble and strife. Sorry, that's not rhyming slang that's deliberate. <coughs> it's, not, it's a promise that, um, it, it, that our lives won't be free of, of, of issues. But it's a promise that through it we will find peace in the form of a person by our sides, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It seems strange that Jesus' coming to Bethlehem would seem to represent the very opposite of peace. Controversy over fatherhoods, homelessness, murderous pursuit, exile, followed by a ministry that generated controversy, misunderstanding and ultimately hate that led to a violent, violent death. Death on a cross, a strange end for a prince of peace. Yet in that one single act of sacrifice, all the things that are broken in humanity and the things that surround, surrounded Jesus' life, your life, my life, are absorbed by him. It's as if he takes on himself everything that will push us down and Jesus takes it on himself so that we can be free. A peace that the world cannot understand because in that one act of grace we are united to the Prince of Peace as brother and friends and can be reassured by his presence, whatever the circumstances. It's logical that we as his people should be called a people of peace ourselves. Not a peace drummed up by self-will, but given freely by a saviour who gave everything 
that we can enter his peace. And that is a promise. And 